This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, apparently we spend more than 20 hours a week listening to music. A lot more than that if you're really into it. Why is it, though, that the older people get, the less adventurous they get with music? Everyone gets stuck in the past. Maybe you've been wondering that yourself. There's actually some psychology behind this, and we're going to be getting into that research a bit later. Also, speaking of music, really interesting story coming up. You're going to hear from a former member of Spacey Jane about why she decided to leave the band just as it was blowing up and getting famous. We're going to be checking in on the NRL too. Got to find out what's happening with this potential player boycott that's cancelled the season's official launch. First, though. The Russians didn't expect to face such a resistance. Ukraine's air alarms have become a part of everyday life. Putin thought Ukraine was weak. I don't think he's thinking that right now. On Triple J. Exactly one year ago, the world was on tenterhooks. Russia was about to invade Ukraine. And then when it happened, there were all kinds of predictions that it'd be over in months or even weeks. But this war drags on. Thousands are dead. Millions have been forced out of their homes. Ukraine is battered but defiant. Russia's blaming everyone else. And the rest of the world is asking, when is this war going to end? April McLennan has more. It was a year ago this week when Russian President Vladimir Putin declared war on Ukraine. Circumstances require firm and immediate action from us. I decided to conduct a special military operation. Anyone who tries to stop us and threaten our country and people should know Russia's response will be immediate and lead to consequences you have never faced in your history. We are ready for any outcome. Minutes later, explosions rang out across Ukrainian cities. Russia had launched a full-scale invasion. I woke up and heard a series of shots. I rushed to the balcony and realised they weren't fireworks. People were running on the street. Oh, that's a missile! That's a missile! That's a f***ing missile! Since then, many have fought and died for their country. We know hundreds of thousands of soldiers on both sides have been killed or wounded. But neither Kiev nor Moscow have actually released these figures. Nearly 19,000 civilian deaths have been recorded officially, but it's believed the real death toll is a lot higher. Both of my neighbours were killed as they stood by the car seeing off their son and daughter-in-law. Their house was also destroyed. She was a lover of life, my beautiful sunshine, she says. What will I do without her? What did you kill him for? What did you do to my son? May you be cursed for the whole of your lives by all the mother's tears. Around 8 million Ukrainian refugees have actually fled the country. Some of them have since returned home, but others have left Europe altogether in search of safety. A year on, Vladimir Putin's given a pretty big speech. He rattled off his usual justifications for the war, saying Russian troops were defending the interests of its people in the Donbass region and were liquidating the neo-Nazi threat. Responsibility for fueling the Ukrainian conflict, for its escalation and for the growing number of victims, lies fully with the West and, of course, with the regime in Kyiv. I wish to repeat, they started the war. We are using force to stop it. 
Russia currently controls around 18% of Ukrainian territory, and that's mostly in the east of the country. But as the war continues, both countries are continuing to lose and gain territory. And the question remains, when will this war end? Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says he hopes 2023 will become a year of victory. This unprovoked and criminal Russia's war against Ukraine and against the whole world and democratic world has to end with uh, liberating the whole of uh, Ukraine's territory from Russia's occupation and the solid guarantees of the long-term security for our country as well as the Europe and the whole world. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. I want to get into this a bit more now. And we've been checking in with Associate Professor Matthew Sussex from ANU right through this war. He's with us now. Hey, Matt, a year on, a lot's happened. But I guess the question is, is Ukraine any closer to getting rid of Russia? Uh, look, it's a really interesting question, Dave. I mean, uh, after a year, we still can't really tell with with much certainty how it's going to play out over the next few months uh, and and maybe longer that the conflict goes on. Um, It does look as though the Ukrainians still have kind of the upper hand, um, but the the Russian armed forces have uh, sort of wrested back a bit of the momentum recently. And a lot of, there's a lot of worry about uh, a big Russian spring offensive that's supposed to start in, uh, well, virtually imminently. Um, and the Russians have reinforced their their positions with with probably about another 150,000 troops, which is a hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, the problem is that they're very untrained and they're being used in human waves basically as cannon fodder. Um, so I guess it's too early to tell. But if you're, if you're Ukraine, you'd probably be glad that you're receiving still the continued pipeline of support from the West uh, and hoping that that continues. Well, also that really visible support of having US President Joe Biden visit this week, like how important was that for Ukraine and, you know, for for optics there? Oh, look, it was hugely important. Um, it's It was important on three levels. One, important to the Ukrainians to show that uh, America's in it for the long haul um, and, and basically doubling down on, on the assistance that it's giving Ukraine. Um, it was important to to America's allies in Europe, those who uh, worry that you know the Americans might might be getting a bit reticent about continuing on, um, and of course, ultimately, it's a big message to Vladimir Putin that uh, he might be determined to uh, to stay in the fight, but so is the US in terms of supplying Zelensky. Is there a concern that Ukraine might start to lose support from countries in the West as the costs of this war continue to blow out? Uh, look, there is, um, and I really put that down to the, the West's typical risk aversion when it comes to war. Um, when we say the cost might blow out, that's certainly, you know, a cost for the United States, for Germany, for France, for other aid donors and so on. But that cost is measured in dollars, not in human lives. And uh, in Ukraine, uh, it's being measured absolutely in, in effects on families, um, effects on people all over the country. So they're the ones that are fighting for national survival. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, to be hoped that uh, that they continue to get what they need to try and liberate their territory. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Associate Professor Matthew Sussex from ANU about, you know, the anniversary that we've come up to this week, a year since the um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Matt, we had Vladimir Putin making a big speech overnight. One of the big things that he announced in that was getting out um, of the New START nuclear arms treaty. Russia was 
exiting that. Can you explain what it is and how significant that treaty is? Yeah, that's the last remaining uh, treaty, major arms control treaty between the United States and uh, and Russia. And um, basically what it does is it allows each side to monitor each other's nuclear weapons with on-site inspections, um, and it allows or basically puts limits on the number of nuclear weapons each side can build. Now, what Putin has done is he hasn't withdrawn from it completely. He's suspended participation. Uh, But he was blocking American weapons inspectors from 2022, uh, and then before that, 2020. So... So realistically, Russia hasn't been participating in it anyway. This is a kind of symbolic act, but it it remains to be seen whether Putin will take it further. If he does, he could do things like build new nuclear weapons or conduct nuclear weapons tests, and that would all be pretty dangerous and uh, and pretty depressing, frankly. And, I mean, Putin had a lot more to say in his speech overnight. What did you make of what he had to say in general? Oh, look, not a lot, to be honest. Um, it was a it was an hour and a bit worth of amateur history lesson, a bit rambling, uh, lots of uh, sort of minor apparatchik-style detail about Russian agricultural production. Um, it was trying to do two things. One, it was trying to um, tell the Russian people that, you know, the, the Russian economy continues to tick up over. Uh, and the other thing was, of course, to to give someone, uh, identify someone else to blame for the war. And of course, he said that it was the West and uh, he said that it was Ukraine. He used the term Nazi, I think, 11 times. Um, he said that just as the West aided the rise of Hitler's Germany, so too it was aiding the rise of uh, a fascist Ukraine and that the West wouldn't stop at anything uh, using terrorists and even the devil to punish Russia. So it was a it was a rambling kind of meandering speech that went all the way through the Russian psyche as Putin sees it, uh, all the way through to how much wheat that the Russians are growing. Yeah, it was covered a lot of ground. It was definitely confusing at points. I was um, following it online. Um, Matt, I guess this is a impossible question to answer, but I will ask you anyway. We spoke to you a year ago. We're speaking to you now. Where do you think we're going to be in another year's time in terms of this war? That's a massive question, but I think that um, absent the complete collapse of the Ukrainian armed forces, I don't think that's likely, and absent the removal of Vladimir Putin, which is possibly more likely, but still, you know, a long time off, I think, uh, this war is going to be playing on for, for quite some time yet. I would not be surprised at all if we're talking at the end of the year and it's still going on. Right. But that said, this year is probably going to be pretty decisive. So we'll have a pretty clear picture, I think, by the end of the year, which way it's going to go. Oh, we definitely appreciate your insight as always. Matthew Sussex from ANU, thank you very much for breaking all that down for us. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks heaps. And a nation waits on in anticipation. We're holding solid on, on what we think is fair. On Triple J. Summer's wrapping up, so if you're into footy, exciting time. Your sport is back and big times ahead. But you might have heard the NRL season's hit a block before it's even started. Actually, the NRL season launch has been cancelled over concerns of a player boycott. It's not... It's got to do a bit with pay, I guess, but we've got to find out what's going on here, get all the details. Nick Campton knows everything about rugby league. He's a sports reporter with the ABC and he's with us now. Hey, Nick, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, hey, great to be here. Can you explain what's been cancelled here? It's not actually like the first game of the season. It's the official launch, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So at the start of every season, the NRL likes to hold a media event where they have the, the captains from, from all 17 clubs and maybe one or two other star players. They bring them all together in a, in a glitzy sort of locale. The media takes a lot of nice photos, you know, gets a good run on the 6 o'clock news. And it's really just a way of saying, you know, the, the footy's finally back and really sort of pushing the word out there that summer's over, put the cricket bats away, it's time to pick up, time to pick up the seasons. But uh, that was meant to be on Thursday. But last night the NRL sent an email out saying that uh, it had been cancelled and instead we're all just going to have to sit around and wait on our hands a little bit until the season officially kicks off on Thursday night. Interesting. So what's going on? What was behind this? And, like, did you guys have any idea that this was coming? Well, I th- it was possible to read the tea leaves and see it was coming a little bit. The, the, the crux of the matter is the, the, the NRL players have been in conflict with the league for, for quite a while now over the striking of a, of a, of a new pay deal for, for the entire competition. And that's a process that's dragged on since last November. That's when the deal was originally meant to be done. But for a variety of reasons, it's, it's really sort of dragged out. And as the new year started, the players started taking more, more drastic steps in an effort to to pressure the NRL into signing a more favourable deal. And one of those steps that they took was uh, boycotting official NRL events. So, for example, uh, the headshots that you see of a player on a club website or something like that, the NRL takes care of those and and the players haven't done them this summer. It's all sorts of smaller things that the the fans might not see, but things that have made this preseason a little bit more inconvenient for the NRL. What they've done here with the season launch is probably the most high profile of of the moves they have made. There was a little bit of talk during the trial games that they might tape over the NRL logo on their jerseys or they might delay kickoff of the game in an effort to sort of bring attention to to, to what they're dealing with. But this is definitely the most high-profile move so far. Okay. It's not all, like, about money, though, is it? Like, I was reading some of it's about, um, you know, part of what they're offered, medical support, um, you know, transition plans after retirement, those sorts of things. Yeah, it's a mistake to sort of frame this as, you know, the really rich NRL players just want more money. I think that's a, that's a bad read on the situation. The, the basic idea is, is they're trying to, to get a better deal, not just for the top end of the players, but for the entire game and particularly for the, for the, for the female players as well. Uh, there's never been a women's collective bargaining agreement in the five years of, of, of the NRLW, and that's something that the RLPA has been pushing really hard for for a couple of years now. So that was one of the that was one of the sticking points in this agreement between the players and the NRL. Another one was uh, the expansion of what they call a hardship fund. So for players who have their careers end prematurely or do fall on hard times after a time, that there will be more money uh, there for them. I, I, th- I think the best way to think of it is this isn't just something for the for the top end of the competition for the really big stars. You know, this is a they're trying to get a, a a more equitable deal for a player who might only play five or six first grade games or, or, or somebody who isn't on that sort of eye-popping money that we think of when we think of professional sports stars. They're try- I think they're trying to get a better deal for the entirety of the game, not just the top end. And I think that's a really crucial point to understand. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Um, it could escalate, I guess. That's probably what officials are worried about. Is there a concern that players could strike, that they could step it up a notch? I don't. I don't think so. Like strikes a really big word, and it's a word that does get bandied around any time there is sort of a labour negotiation between, a, you know, a group of players and a league. But I think a strike is the last thing that either side would really want. Um, Daily Cherry Evans was was up for media today. He's the manly halfback. He's quite high up in the RLPA. He's really been on the front foot of a lot of the negotiations. And judging from his comments, he kind of said that a, a strike was sort of the furthest thing from their mind. I think. Part of the reason that the event today 
uh, the event tomorrow rather was cancelled was because I think negotiations are at a delicate stage. I think both sides are a lot closer to striking a deal than they were, say, a month ago. And I think it's just at a really, really crucial point. And I think the NRL is prioritising getting that deal done over any sort of season launch. So I think a strike is is pretty unlikely at this point right. because I don't think that would really serve either side's goals. And Nick, heading into this season, what are your thoughts? Is there a lot of hype? Um, you look, Obviously, you're looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, can't wait. Can't wait. I absolutely lose my mind over the summer. <laughs> you know, I love cricket. I love all that stuff, but, you know... Footy's the thing that really gets me going, so it feels like my life's about to really start up again. Oh, you know? you've been waiting for this. You've been waiting for this. It's around the corner. ABC Sports reporter Nick Camden. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hack. I guess there are some behind-the-scenes stuff about being a musician that people don't really always see. On Triple J. Spacey Jane. Easily one of the most loved young Australian bands in the country. Come on, look at this year's hottest 100 top 10. Tells you all you need to know. They pull huge crowds wherever they go. Back in 2019, Spacey Jane's bassist, Amelia Murray, had to make a really tough decision. She had to decide whether she'd continue with this band that the world was starting to fall in love with, or whether she'd dive into her other passion, medicine. Amelia did leave the band, and for the first time, she's spoken publicly with the ABC's Brianna Fiore in Albany in WA. So we've got the story for you. Here's Amelia telling her own story, what it was like to leave Spacey Jane, why she made a decision and whether she regrets it. I was in Spacey Jane for three years, the first three years, and I played bass guitar. Bass is the most underrated instrument. I love it so much. Most people don't notice the bass line, but you would know if a song doesn't have a cool bass line, you'd probably be less interested in it. So it was at the point where I had finished my undergrad and was going into the post-grad that I made the decision to leave the band. Writing and recording with your friends is just like the coolest thing ever. But I think there were other aspects of being a musician as a career that didn't really suit me as well. So... Um, I found touring really hard and the late nights and I don't drink and the party scene's not really where I feel most comfortable. So I guess there are some behind the scenes stuff about being a musician that people don't really always see is quite hard. So that was kind of a contributing factor as to why I ended up picking medicine over music. I really like working in the ED because it is so varied. I think that keeps you on your toes and you also learn a lot because you're being pushed to learn widely and broadly and I think that's really awesome, especially at my level of training where I'm still trying to learn a lot. Yeah, I feel very lucky to have found something like sexual health that I'm so passionate about because it definitely makes going to work a lot easier and a lot more fun when you actually really care about it and um, I feel content in my decision that I've made the right the right call going into medicine Um, and I guess it's been a few years now like I don't I don't really ever go to work and think oh I could be doing this you know I'm I'm really happy at work and I had my go at music and um, had a really good time doing it but kind of I think that ran its course for me and so then I don't look back at it and be like oh I wish I was doing that because I did do that 
I mean, I feel very proud of how far Booster Seat has gone and is continuing to go. All five of us are on the song, so Pepper, who's the bass player now, she sings the vocals on it and I play the bass, so it's kind of one of the few songs that has all five of us on it. I definitely still play around with the bass by myself uh, in the lounge room, but not doing any um, projects or bands or anything anymore. Don't have the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I do love playing, it's great. I actually don't feel FOMO. I'm just happy for them. And it was hard initially and sad, but there's never been any resentment. It's, yeah, I'm just I'm really happy that they're doing what they're wanting to do and they're really successful and I'm, I'm really happy for them. Hat on Triple J. Former Spacey Jane bassist Amelia Murray telling her story to the ABC's Brianna Fiore. Such a nice story. You've got messages coming through. Sean from Geelong says, been wondering what Amelia's been up to lately. Good to hear from her. A couple of messages on Instagram as well. Someone says, I met Amelia after a spacey gig back in early 2019 before meeting the rest of the band. She was genuinely so sweet and inspired me to kick on as a girl in the industry. So happy she's pursuing what's best for her. Another person says, Amelia was my mentor. I'll never forget how caring and amazing she was. Really great to see those comments coming through and interesting to see how people can be so successful in one career and then switch it up and be so successful in another. All right, time to move on. Hack. Like, it takes a lot of effort to constantly be searching for new music and I reckon at some point it becomes exhausting and it could lose its fun. On Triple J. Yeah, we're sticking with the music theme, actually, because I want to ask you, how much do you enjoy discovering new music? Maybe that's part of why you listen to Triple J, Unearthed, because you want to be exposed to new stuff, probably. Are you one of those people that does a lot of searching yourself, looking for new artists, new sounds? And why is that generally older people don't do that as much? Like, do your parents have the same playlist that they keep listening to over and over again? Why is that? There's actually some research behind it. Someone that's been looking into this very thing is with us right now. His name's Tim McHenry. He's a professor of music at the Australian Catholic University. Tim, thanks for joining us on Hack. Pleasure. Hi, David. You'll often hear older people saying, music's not what it used to be. It was better back in my day. <laughs> Why are they saying that? Is there some psychology behind this? I think there might be. It's, it's a common refrain. You hear it all the time. Um, and look, it seems to be that, you know, taste has to do with familiarity. And as music gradually changes... Um, we don't necessarily change with it. And um, the music that's being produced right now is less familiar. And that's a common reaction to something that's unfamiliar. Can you explain what our music taste is? Like, we have an idea of what our taste is, how it's formed and stuff, but what actually is it? Yeah, well, look, you know, the points have been made already around the fact that when we're teenagers, when we're adolescents, um, we're forming our identity. And as part of puberty, we have these really intense feelings. And these intense feelings create strong memories. And so the music that we're exploring at this time tends to sort of imprint itself on us. So as a you know an adult, you might hear an unfamiliar piece, something that you've not heard before, and you might like it instantly. There's a good chance that there's something about that new piece that matches something you've heard before. Because Taste is connected to pleasure, 
And pleasure is connected to a sort of dopamine reaction in the brain. We're familiar with something. Our mind recognizes that pattern, recognizes that that type of pattern has brought us pleasure in the past and triggers pleasure based on what it knows has previously been pleasurable to us. That's so interesting. So if I hear a song I like and I like that kind of style of music, it's because it's triggered some kind of memory inside me um, relating to a good time. Yeah, it it could be. You know, these things are hard to prove definitively, but um, that's sort of some of the best ideas that we've got. Okay. Is there a golden age for discovering the music that ends up shaping your life? Yeah, it seems to be, you know, this intense growth of interest in in particular types of music from about 11 to 14. And then from 14 to early adulthood, um, that that interest sort of really gets quite sort of driven. Um, Young adulthood, up to about the age 26, we tend to see that pattern continuing, but it starts to wane after that. That's interesting. We've got some messages coming through. Um, Luke says, nah, my old man, um, he's always down at JV Hi-Fi flicking through the rock and indie vinyl sections, listening to all sorts of killer stuff that puts my music taste to shame. Obviously, it's not everyone we're talking about. I'm Mm. wondering, you know, do we become more intolerant of music as we grow older? Is that something that we see as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Jake's father's experience is not uncommon. You know, I'm a music professional. I didn't get into the profession because I didn't like music. I'm constantly searching for new music. Um, some This is population data. And what the population data tells us is that engagement with music decreases. Um, the other thing it tells us is the sort of impatience and the negative feelings towards music tend to increase as well. Um, understanding why is a different matter. But that it happens, the evidence is there. Let's go to a caller now. We've got Jai on the line. Jai, um, what's what's your experience? Do you have a parent that's really into music? Yeah, so my mom actually is a radio DJ or was a radio DJ like in her older age and really enjoyed like hunting Australian music and like always had new music to show us and like young Australian bands and like getting them gigs and stuff. So, yeah. And you reckon that really influenced you growing up? Yeah, 100%. I don't think I'm going to stop looking for new music anytime soon. That's so interesting. And I reckon we've got like a few messages, Dry, saying similar things. Maybe the Triple J audience is just a bit more elite when it comes to these things. I don't know, Professor Tim McHenry, it could be that. Um, Can you explain what open-earedness is? Because that was an interesting term that I saw in your research. Yeah, it's um, a a term that you get across uh, a lot of academic research to try and capture the notion of how willing we are, how, you know, our degree of willingness to engage with new music. Um, You know, really young kids up to about the uh, age of nine are the most open-eared. They are more than happy to engage with anything that's played to them. Um, And, you know, that tendency dips a little bit in the teenage years, grows a bit in young adulthood, and then declines uh, across the rest of our lives. Um, One theory for that is changes in our sort of auditory capacity might make um, sound a bit more unpleasant to us. Uh, loud noises and, and things like that become uh, more distressing to us as you age. But again, that, that's a theory. And look, on you know Jai's point about her parents and perhaps the Triple J listenership more broadly, um, it won't happen to me is, is you know, the underlying thing. And I hope it doesn't. But that it might is worth considering. Form good habits. Make that sort of 
decision to listen to new music part of your life regularly. And yeah, I don't think it will happen to you. It and has to be deliberate. And also, you know, and we've we've only got 20 seconds left, Tim, but it's just about um, making sure you are diligent with those habits, right? That's it. That's it. And share it with friends. That's another great way to keep habits going. We definitely appreciate that. Such interesting stuff. You can find more on this research if you want to know more on the conversation. There's an article there. Professor Tim McHenry from the Australian Catholic University. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.